we're stopping the economy, but we cannot stop the engine of healthcare ever, not for a moment. And part of that engine is the is the continuous wave of people coming in uh, to uh, to learn our profession and to start practicing it. And I think now more than ever, we we have to understand that even if we have to change how we do these things. We, we, we cannot change that we're doing them and that we're doing them in a timely fashion. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake Eccles. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Okay, welcome to today's episode of the Neurosurgery Podcast. We are very honored as another episode in our ongoing coronavirus mini-series to have today Dr. Nate Selden the Chair of Neurosurgery at OHSU in Portland. Uh, Dr. Selden, welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thanks. It's good to be with you. So today's episode in particular, as we'll get into later, is going to be geared um, kind of specifically towards medical students who are coming up this year and want to enter the field of neurosurgery. So for our younger listeners, Dr. Selden, can you introduce yourself a little bit and give them some of your background? Sure. Uh, I grew up uh, here in Portland and uh, have been uh, here in practice on the faculty at OHSU for about 20 years. Um, I've been very interested in education throughout my career. I sort of call myself the accidental educator, but I've gotten involved in a number of things, including uh, leading the committee that made the milestones for neurosurgery training, uh, working with the team that launched the boot camp courses around the country that all neurosurgery interns go to. And uh, these days, um, I'm secretary of uh, an organization called the Society of Neurological Surgeons, uh, which is um, the actually the original neurosurgical society, the first in the world. We're 100 years old this year. And uh, we're the Society of uh, Academic um, uh, Department Chairs and Residency Program Directors in the United States. So we're very interested in and take a role in uh, working with uh, the ACGME and uh, WMC and other organizations that uh, think about education to make sure neurosurgical education is is done in an optimal way. So these are important issues for me. Right. And that's exactly why we wanted to have you on in particular today to talk about this year's externship cycle and interview cycle for the medical students applying. But before we get into that, Dr. Selden, can you give us a sense of what things are like on the ground there in Portland with the coronavirus going on? Yeah, so uh, we're, uh, you know, working really hard to keep our communities safe, uh, to take care of uh, patients who need us, um, to take care of uh, non-COVID patients who still have emergency uh, medical and surgical uh, and trauma-related needs, uh, and to take care of our nurses and doctors and technicians and other folks in the hospital and to keep them well. We're really fortunate in Oregon that Oregon is a late entering state in terms of the wave, and that's given us extra time to prepare uh, and to, uh, you know, we hope spread out and reduce the size of that uh, peak 
of our wave. In fact, uh, the national press is reporting this morning that Oregon sent, as a state, sent 140 uh, ventilators uh, to New York. There have been some Oregon doctors uh, going out there. I think, uh, uh, you know, we're going to have our own uh, our own issues here, but we're we're cautiously optimistic that uh, we've been given a chance to mitigate them. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully that'll help us. Great, Nate. That's a wonderful philanthropic thing you're doing for uh, the country. And hopefully, as uh, New York has said, maybe they can return to favor if things get bad in Oregon. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah. So we're, you know, we have we have some patients uh, in the hospital, some patients in the ICUs. And Oregon's done a couple of neat things early, which is uh, to, to take the major hospitals here in the metro area, Portland, and sort of create one virtual hospital during the crisis so that we can move uh, resources and people around. And that's made things much more nimble and prevented uh, pressure points in, in, in any one individual ER or, or uh, hospital. And so I, I hope that, that that level of sort of cooperation and thinking across silos is going to help out. We've certainly seen New York doing that. They're under much, much more pressure than us. But I really think uh, the right approach is to say, hey, you know, uh, we're all doctors. It, it, in a way, this uh, gets us back to the first principles of why we went into medicine. And so maybe that's a silver lining for this, that we're, you know, when we come out of this, we're going to think a little less in our silos and a little bit more about the overall uh, mission of human health. And I think that'll be a good thing. Right, right. So today it's April 4th. And so I know that a lot of folks in their third year of medical school or the equivalent of that are thinking about what they're going to be doing in terms of applying for neurosurgery residency. The process, as you know, starts really early. And I know it's only April 4th, so it's hard to tell where this pandemic's headed, how long we're going to be in lockdown and what travel is going to be like. But we wanted, uh, JP and I wanted you to think about the issue, which I know you have, about the unintended effects of all this. And and for the folks who are you know thinking about applying, what are the considerations today? What kind of message do you have for these young people? Yeah. So uh, first of all, I'd be, um, you know, uh, very optimistic. Um, it's a difficult time to enter medicine. It's sort of a scary time, you know, to, uh, uh, as it were, uh, enter a profession where people are walking towards the gunfire, to use the, the uh, analogy from wartime, uh, because healthcare workers are going to where the danger is. Um, but as we learn more about the virus, uh, as our testing gets better, as our systems and PPE supplies are going to start to rebound with in increases in production, we're going to be very well prepared to take care of these patients in a, a more controlled and safe environment and to learn how to get the upper hand. And so um, in that context, you know, they're going to be coming into a profession uh, who has never been uh, more needed or more valuable to the community. I mean, in my entire time in medicine, I have not walked outside in the evening and had, you know, my entire community stop what they're doing at 7 p.m. Uh, to say thanks to nurses and doctors. So fundamentally, when, you know, there's a lot of short-term issues, a lot of things to solve, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of anxiety, but I think the choice that these uh, students made to go into medicine uh, because they wanted to help people is fundamentally being uh, validated and, and valued right now. And so they're in the right place to make a difference because, you know, this pandemic is going to take 
you know, a while to sort out and we're going to have to be ready to face things like this in the future. And they're going to be part of those solutions. And I think their careers are going to be highly relevant. In the meantime, we have got some um, real issues which start on, you know, the fact that some of these kids, including um, our uh, young doctors at OHSU are graduating early, have graduated in many cases, including some of ours. And five uh, medical students at OHSU have already started uh, residencies here locally in uh, anesthesia, internal medicine, and uh, emergency medicine, and are sort of contributing uh, to the response uh, early, uh, which is wonderful. I know that creates some anxiety that they're, um, you know, they, you know, didn't have exposure to a few of their finishing rotations, um, but in cases where there are specific needs. Uh, uh, our institution and I know others are sort of backfilling those and giving them on-the-job training. And I would tell them that uh, going back to my fourth year of medical school, the the uh, the April May time was um, was really not super impactful. And uh, the things that they're going to be doing in the hospital, uh, probably for the most part, backfilling care needs out in the community for non-COVID patients. Is just going to be incredibly valuable to patients and a real chance for them to contribute um, much earlier than they might have in a typical environment. So in a way, they're 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 going to have a chance to have a real impact early. Right now, turning specifically to think about um, our listeners who will be applying into neurosurgery this year. Obviously, it's very early to comment with specifics, and everyone around the country and the leadership, I'm sure, is focusing on addressing this COVID crisis and taking care of patients right now. But the neurosurgery application cycle is one of the most competitive in medicine, and it generally hinges strongly on things like externships and the letters of recommendation you get after them, um, and then a pretty extensive interview cycle. Um, Has there been any discussion either within your department or within uh, the neurosurgical leadership around the country with whom you're involved about how travel restrictions and clinical restrictions may impact these students and their process this year? So that's a fantastic question. And I'll, and I'll tell you very frankly that those discussions are in the very earliest, uh, uh, and I would almost say speculative um, stages. Right. And I think, um, but they're super important. And we have, um, you know, as the secretary of the senior society, I have been, one of the things I've been doing is creating mechanisms for, um, program directors and academic chairs to communicate with each other and to start to tackle some of these issues. But I will say that a lot of this is going to be driven by things that are external to neurosurgery or any given specialty in the sense that a lot of this is going to be very practical and and mechanically driven, if you like, Um, which medical schools are going to allow travel out by medical students. Uh, Are the, are uh, the school is going to feel that their insurance um, uh, for risk exposure of students um, leaving their own campus is, is adequate in a setting where they could be, be sickened on a clinical rotation at another hospital. How are we going to deal with the significant differences between um, status and risk in different um, communities and different states around the country? And will this prevent you know, either on the outgoing end from the medical school that the student wants to travel out from for an externship or on the receiving end where a medical school in a city that's heavier hit may be 
maybe many months before they can reasonably accept students in on externships. And then finally, is that um, landscape where there's a lot of uh, a lot of diversity of situation um, going to create concerns that certain students would unintentionally uh, be advantaged over other students or certain schools over other schools in terms yeah. of um, either you know having a, ch- a fair chance to audition if you like or a fair chance to recruit residents um, so all of this is a moving target I was on a double AMC uh, informational call with national folks uh, just this week and you know to be frank there were more questions than answers but the good news is that uh, people across all the specialties and and the double AMC and other organizations are starting um, to ask the right questions. And, and I think fundamentally, if I had to just step back and look at this from 20,000 feet, I think, um, you know, the home uh, medical school is going to be more important than usual in this cycle. A lot of the information we're going to get on these um, applicants and their abilities in the clinical setting is going to come from their home neurosurgery program, number one potentially from other key uh, relevant programs like their general surgery experience. So I could imagine, and this is, again, purely speculative, I could imagine that we would advise people to um, get a letter from a couple of people at their own neurosurgery program, and then maybe a letter from a leader in their general surgery program to give another perspective uh, in the absence of letters uh, from outside uh, neurosurgery programs if, if, it, if we're just not able to have those rotations this cycle, which which is a possibility. Yeah, that, you know, it's interesting you bring that up, Nate, because I, I think that that's a, a very, um, I don't want to say it's pessimistic, but let's hope it doesn't come to that, right? Because as you said, there, there will be many unintended consequences for the applicants and the programs. But let's assume that this is something protracted, and I don't want to, to make that assumption, but many people have to plan for that. What is the advice you give to the applicant now? So let's say that there is a 70% reduction in sub-internships across the board uh, in this country, in this cycle. What would someone do? Let's say you're coming from a medical school that doesn't have a uh, residency program in neurosurgery, say University of Central Florida, right? Those students are at a disadvantage. What, What would those people start to do at this point in time? Because it's still early. It's still April. Yeah. So what I would do is, you know, communicate. I would uh, uh, I would communicate with your uh, dean of students, let them know your um, goals uh, and your concerns about potential barriers. Be really sort of specific and concrete so that they can look for more specific solutions. I would reach out to a program, perhaps in, in your state, um, uh, that does host a, a, an ACGME accredited residency and uh, reach out perhaps to the program coordinator, who's the administrative person running that program. Let them know about your situation. Ask them to share it with the program director. See if you could be assigned a virtual mentor at that place. Perhaps you could, uh, you know, uh, participate in uh, some of the uh, resident medical student conferences remotely. Um, you know, again, I, this is speculative. I'm, you know, it's a great question. But I think there are ways that you could engage while we're waiting to see what happens. And you, you'd have to be very open with both parties. Listen, I want to be, as soon as it's safe, I would like to be able uh, to, to go to this nearby 
medical center and have an externship because for me this is um, a really uh, more of a uh, of a make or break situation given that we don't um, offer it at our own institution and I think that uh, local the local situation the local leadership of both those programs um, are going to be super important uh, in finding solutions and those solutions may be at least for the coming couple of months, very individual rather than systematic across the country. So you're going to have to sort of um, advocate for yourself and um, respectfully, helpfully understand the people you're going to be asking things from or also spending 10, 12 hours a day reorganizing their hospital for the COVID response because most of them are clinical leaders too. But I think uh, for motivated young people who are talented, um, there'll be a real willingness to help you out. Well, that I think is is great advice um, for these students, you know, who are most affected by this uh, impacted cycle for ways that they can get proactive and ways that they can effectively spend this time. Um, would you have any advice for anyone on on my end of things or in residency programs for how we could best uh, gear up and try to prepare ourselves for our end of things moving into the next interview cycle and, and still hoping to meet and potentially recruit the best people this year. Yeah, I think, um, uh, you know, it's sort of a similar situation in with a, a lack of, <clears throat> of real understanding. I mean, we could be doing much better um, in terms of uh, how our hospitals are running. We could be back up to, um, um, providing a much higher uh, throughput of non-COVID care uh, uh, and some elective care and other things, and and yet potentially be in a situation where we're not doing, you know, so-called elective travel, like rotation travel, like potentially even, and the AAMC folks are are definitely talking about what what does the world look like if you can't. Um, if medical students are not allowed to travel for on-site interviews, um, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I really hope it doesn't. And I, you know, I personally am, am an optimist. And I think by that time in the fall, we should, we really ought to be able to do that. But let's just say for the sake of argument that we have a, you know, as in 1918 um, and some other uh, smaller uh, viral challenges that we, we have a second wave in the fall and that travels hard. Uh, I think we need to think ahead um, and be prepared. Um, and so we want to have mechanisms in place to do, you know, serious, meaningful uh, virtual uh, interviews. And that would include uh, not just having the face-to-face interviews with faculty, but, um, you know, thinking about a way that you could uh, give people a, a real sense of your program, producing a, um, a substantial, you know, maybe 40 to 60 minute long uh, virtual tour of the um, of the institution so people can see what the facilities look like uh, so figuring out how to have an online sort of format where applicants could hang out informally with residents as a, in a virtual group so that they could really get a feel for the culture of the program which is so important to, to finding the right match between a a trainee and a training program, you know, to really recreate in, in, in as as authentic and substantial a way as we can, uh, the, the you know what we get out of those uh, on-site interviews, so that as a backup, 
um, we have a, a method to do this because no matter what happens, we cannot stop. You know, we can't, we, we're stopping the economy, but we cannot stop the engine of healthcare ever, not right. for a moment. And part of that engine is the, is the continuous wave of people coming in uh, to, uh, to learn our profession and to start practicing it. And I think now more than ever, we, we have to understand that even if we have to change how we do these things, we, we, we cannot change that we're doing them and that we're doing them in a timely fashion. That includes um, bringing people into the profession and, um, and getting the best people for neurosurgery, which is, a, you know, which is certainly a, a demanding and challenging and wonderful specialty that really needs terrific people. Nate, uh, I remember that your wife is also a physician, correct? That's true. That's right. She's pra- she's retired from uh, clinical practice, but a plastic surgeon, microsurgeon. Yeah. What does she tell you about what's happening in, in their world? I mean, are we, do you think we're in a special place or do you think all the specialties are going to deal with this in a, in a similar way? Uh, I think that all the surgical subspecialties are facing very similar challenges um, because our, um, you know, our, uh, Clinical practices have been dramatically reduced in volume and focused on true emergencies. Um, and because our skill sets are not uh, directly oriented uh, to the challenges of COVID care. But I'll tell you, um, subspecialty surgeons in general and neurosurgeons in particular are super innovative, energetic, focused uh, people. I see neurosurgeons around the country uh, on uh, social media and, and in leadership. Uh, forums, um, engaging with uh, um, PPE design and manufacture innovation. We're doing it here. I've seen stuff from the Barrow and many other, and certainly in New York, uh, many other places around the country. Um, uh, neurosurgeons in particular, I, I think we may be unique or almost unique among the specialties in having a large amount of dedicated uh, critical care training. So we, we are able to um, step in in a meaningful way uh, with critical care uh, surge capacity. Um, and, uh, um, you know, neurosurgeons are often leaders in their uh, institutions and are helping really those institutions pivot and change how we do pretty much everything from uh, emergency credentialing and privileging, redeployment of faculty, uh, uh changing over our uh, various acute care and critical care units on the fly to be um, geographic specific COVID care units, shifting patients around healthcare systems from hospital to hospital to make capacity stand, you know, in the harder hit cities like Seattle and New York and, and, and even Chicago now uh, in Detroit standing up, um, you know, new hospitals, um, in the, in the middle of stadiums or convention centers in a matter of days or weeks. I mean, this is incredible stuff. And uh, I know that neurosurgeons are engaging in that and capable of making a, a big difference in many, in many different ways. And I think that should be encouraging to these students who are listening to this podcast. That's the, you know, the challenge today is a virus and it's critical care and medical care. But, um, you know, you're nevertheless, you're coming into a specialty where people are very oriented towards making a difference. And it doesn't matter what the environment is. That's, that's, uh, that's what people in our specialty are going to do. 
Well, Dr. Selden, on behalf of the medical students across the country who have reached out to us with these concerns about their interview cycle this year, I want to thank you for your time to come on the show and um, share your considered opinion, obviously coming from you. Everything you've said, I hope, is very reassuring to these students that even if it's too early to tell exactly how we'll handle this, um, that there are discussions in place and that there will be a plan to make sure that you know everyone in the country still has an interview cycle, that we still match a full complement of neurosurgery residents this year. Um, but most importantly, I, I think, thank you for sharing your opening message that you know, with this crisis going on, there's never been a better time to go into medicine. There's never been a better time to go into neurosurgery in particular. Um, I hope that all of our student listeners take that to heart. So thank you again, sir, for joining us on the podcast today. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys, and uh, stay well and be safe.